Our scripture today is from Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Uh, voy a leer de Efesios 6, versículos 5 a 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Amen, amen. Well, please keep your Bibles or phones open to Ephesians 6 as we uh, continue through there. We've been going through Ephesians in this series on becoming who we are, becoming who we are. And we've gone to this section where this, the last half of uh, Ephesians, really, Paul is addressing how the gospel now affects how we live. What does it look like day to day on the street level? And he gets these last couple weeks we've been looking through it, he looks at the um, just how household rules and how this affects um, your everyday relationships. And this, he talks about work. Basically what he's talking about, the messages for today, is how the gospel transforms our work. You see, all of us, we are people who live and die under authority. We're under authority. We all work in some way or another. Yet, research shows that for American workers, just one out of 10 American workers say that they are satisfied at their jobs. One out of 10. Maybe this isn't very um, you know, surprising for many of you. One out of 10. And we have this, I think because of that, we have this uh, dual problem of both laziness and overwork. Laziness and overwork when, we come, when it comes to work often. And when it comes to work as well, because of this, we can, it's easy to just be a people pleaser. To just be a people pleaser in the way of eye service, just like Paul talks about here in this passage. Robert McGee, in his favorite, uh, famous book, a well-known book, um, The Search for Significance, he talks about just this. He talks about the approval addict. I want to read something that he says. He says, here's a de definition he, he gives for the approval addict. I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself. I have, must be approved by others to feel good about myself. And I think we can all say amen to that, that we struggle with that or have struggled with that in significant ways. He goes on, he says this. Basing our self-worth on what we believe others think of us causes us to become addicted to their approval. Randy felt like a vending machine. Like he gives us example of this guy named Randy. Anyone wanting something could pull an invisible lever and get it. 
On the job, Randy was always doing other people's work for them. At home, his friends continually called on him to help with odd jobs. His wife had him working weekends so that she could continue in the lifestyle to which she had grown accustomed. Even people in Randy's church took advantage of him. People taking advantage of people in the church? No, nah, never. That would never happen, right? No one's smiling. Okay. <laughs> All right. What was the problem? Was Randy simply a self-sacrificing saint? On the surface, yes, but in reality, no, he writes. Randy deeply resented, actually, people who, by demanding so much of him, left him little time for himself. Yet, he couldn't just say no. He longed for the approval of others and believed that by agreeing to their every wish, he would win that approval. So you see, Randy just typifies many of us. We have a problem with the approval and that we carry that on into, into the workplace or in our relationships, how we work and do much of life, how we deal with people in authority over us or under us. We want their approval. But also, as different roles in authority, we feel the temptation to abuse our authority, right? Don't we? Uh, Christian Herter was uh, mass, uh, governor of Massachusetts in the 1950s. He actually ended up being uh, the Secretary of State for three years, 1959 to 1961. U.S. Secretary of State. But while he was governor in Massachusetts, um, he was running hard for a second term in office. And one day, after a very busy morning chasing after votes and no lunch, he arrived at a church barbecue. It was late afternoon, and Herder was famished. He was starving. He was moving down the serving line and he held out his plate to the woman who was serving the chicken. And I'm sure I just, man, he was, he was ready to dig in, right? And she puts a piece of, on his plate and he turns to the next person in line. But the governor, he says, excuse me, do you mind if I have just another piece of chicken? I'm so hungry. Sorry, the woman told him, I'm supposed to give out only one piece of chicken per person. He says, oh man, but I'm starved, said the governor. Sorry, the woman said again, it's only one per person. Governor Herter now, he was a, a modest and unassuming man, but this one time, this time he decides to throw a little bit of his weight around. He says, all right, do you know who I am? He said, I am the governor of this state. The woman says, do you know who I am? The woman says, I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Now move along, mister. <laughs> All right. That just, <laughs> Mabel. Mabel likes it. That just little silly story gets the point of this, that in, when we are in authority, we also can find ways to abuse that authority. You see, none of us like to be under authority. None of us. In fact, when someone tells us to do something, we often just feel inclined suddenly, I, you know, that's, that's the thing that I don't want to do. If someone says, hey, could you move that pile of clothes over there? You're like, no, you know, I want to move that pile of clothes over there. Or I just don't want to do it at all. It's human nature to us now. 
from ever since the garden, we've had this problem. God gives the people this paradise, this beautiful garden surrounded by just, I mean, I can't imagine just the amazing lush vegetation. Uh, what, I can't imagine what the hikes would have been like. You know, you get to name all the animals, spend time with these, these, these animals, and you have every variety of fruit and vegetable to eat from. And there's just one tree that God says, all right, you guys just go for it. Except the only thing that you can't do here in this paradise is there's just one tree, don't touch it, all right? You can't eat from that tree. And what happens? They end up eating from that one tree. I know that. Yeah, you know that. You've heard that story. We don't want to be under authority. We won't want to be under authority from God's word. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? This is our problem. Paul here talks about how the gospel changes how we live under authority. And if I can say it in one sentence, this is what his encouragement is for us. This is the main point. In living under authority, we should live to please God, not man. Live to serve God, not man. I know that story. I learned that and Good, good. All right. Well, let's get into our text. And as we get into our text, we're sit right away. It says, bond servants, obey your masters. Now, this word here, it actually, um, I would argue, be better translated. There's reasons why they do this. But I'm not going to go into it now. But as slaves, slaves, obey your earthly masters. And it's helpful for this context in order as we're, we're going to apply it to our lives. See, all right, what exactly was going on here that Paul is talking into? Now he's talking 2,000 years ago into the ancient Roman world. Ephesus was a Roman colony, and the Roman Empire was this huge, vast territory, right, of the Western world. And a third of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. One third. That means one out of three people in the Roman Empire lived and died as slaves. And Ephesus was no exception. So, this slavery, uh, it's, it's helpful to know exactly a little bit more what this was, because as Americans, we naturally think of maybe pre-Civil War American slavery. So it was a bit different than that. It wasn't based on range, and there was a variety of what, how much responsibilities or how much freedom you actually had, depending on the slave. Being a slave wasn't all that bad in one sense. It was like having insurance. It was like having a job. Um, there was a, it was a status thing, and so that because there was a third of the people had slaves, there was all this labor in some circumstances, and so, and that some slaves, many people, wouldn't even have much to do. Um, it was job security to be a slave. People being given the opportunity to not be a slave would not even take that in some case because they, it was your insurance, it was your livelihood. They protected you, they took care of your family, you had food to eat, you had a roof and shelter to live under. Slaves uh, could achieve social advancement, slaves could own property, and they were, in most cases, permitted to work, actually, um, for pay and to even save enough money to buy their freedom. 
Some were even entrusted with large amounts of money and responsibility and could buy freedom, like I said, or be released. As time progressed, uh, some Roman em emperors later on were granted slaves uh, more and more rights as time progressed. But at the same time, slavery is obviously not the ideal. It's a broken structure in society, a fallen world that we're living in. And the New Testament assumes this. Paul assumes this, but that's is what, all right, a third of the people that he's writing to, they're living under, they're living in. The New Testament assumes, there are two passages about this, that human trafficking is a sin. It automatically assumes that. Yet elsewhere, Paul also says that if slaves can obtain their freedom, they should. All right, this is a good thing. It's good to have autonomy. It's not ideal again, but it's part of this fallen, broken world. And he's, he's talking and speaking into this. All right, because this is how the world is, this is what you're living under and in, this is what things that you can act. So it's not the same situation, obviously, as we find ourselves today, but it's very helpful and applicable to how uh, being an employer or being a supervisor would be also to being a worker to being an employee So he offers this helpful encouragement Paul's main challenge again seek to please God not man. Let's get into it verse 5 And this is Paul's first point He wants us to obey those who are over you in authority obey those over you in authority He says bond servants or slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by the way of eye service as people pleasers but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart all right so employees workers children church members citizens taxpayers there's an implication for us we need to obey those in authority over us. The Bible commands this in multiple places. And that's probably what it's getting at when he says here, obey your earthly masters. Obey your supervisors, your employers. He draws this implicitly, this contrast right away though. He draws it right away between our earthly master though and the implication is we have a heavenly master. And he teases this out more as the passage goes along. Our earthly masters are hard to serve, though, aren't they? They're human. They're like us. They're broken. They're sinful. It's much harder to follow and obey them, right? He says, though, do this with fear and trembling. Do this with fear and trembling. I think there's two reasons why he says this. One, because they are your livelihood, right? If you don't have a job, if you don't have that security, you don't have that, right? You don't have pay, you don't have food. In the ancient world, uh, a master of a slave could do almost anything to you. So there's, all right, be careful. They shelter, they provide you food, shelter, insurance, protection. They take care of your family. If you're out of a job, um, it's, not, it's not just being out of a job, but it's so much more, especially for them in that time. Secondly, I think he talks about fear and trembling because you're ultimately, what he's getting at is you're serving Christ. You're serving Christ. We want to do a good job for him. We should work hard for him. We should work with excellence for Jesus. 
our almighty, holy, and good God who's been so gracious to us. Yeah, like I've talked about this before, we have this problem that there's can be at the same time overwork in our work, right, and laziness. And often, there is both of that going on. Patterson and Kim, in the book, uh, The Day America Told the Truth, tells us that one in four employees give his or her best at the job. Maybe we've all seen that. Maybe we all are part of that. <laughs> one in four give their best on the job. Also, they say about 20% of the average worker's time is wasted. 20%. I've seen sometimes more, right? <laughs> 20%. So basically, creating, a, on average, a four-day work week. 20%. That's a fifth. Paul says elsewhere in the Bible, he says that there's, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. That we should be hardworking people. That work is a part of what we do. He says this should not be the case for the Christian. Instead, I think uh, David Ben-Gurion, he captured how, instead, how Christians, we should view work. He says this, he says, we do not consider manual work a curse or a bitter necessity, not even as a means of just making a living. living. We consider it as high human function, as a basis of human life, the most dignified thing in the life of a human in which ought to be free, creative. Men ought to be proud of it. The gospel transforms our view of work. Verse five, again, he continues on, he says, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. This means that we actually want to work hard. The gospel changes our heart when we're doing it for someone. You know, have you ever, um, maybe for example, when you've fallen in love with someone and, you know, being in a relationship is a lot of work. But when you do it, you're like, oh man, you think of these elaborate dates. You think of, all right, let me get this present for him or for her. And it's just, it's all this work, but it's not work to you because you're in love, right? Jacob, when he uh, was going to, had to work for his uh, wife, Rachel, his uncle, right, made him work seven years. And it says, oh, but to Jacob, it was just like a day because, oh, he was in love. And so he did everything. And then when he got tricked and he had to work another seven years because he married the wrong one, uh, if you don't know that story, that's a longer story. I'll go into it. But he says, oh, again, it went by so fast. Another seven years. What's another seven years when you're in love? It changes us. We are sincere toward Christ. We wish the best for the person or the company that we serve or work for as we would wish the best for Christ. That's how we please him. Verse 6. Verse 6. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants, as slaves of Christ. All right, don't think that you're just an employee of your boss. All right, you're working for them. You're an employee of Christ. You're working for Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. 
he continues to unpack what he's talking about, this kind of servants and obedience that we should have toward those who are in authority over us, that we work and live with. There's a few other passages from Paul that he, throughout his letters, that he says similar things. In Colossians 3.23, he says, Whatever you do, work with all your heart, as working for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says similarly. Yeah, you guys memorize that verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. <clears throat> so friends, obey those whom you serve. Obey those whom you serve. Work hard, excellent, with a sincere heart, because you're pleasing Christ. You're working for God, not man. Some of you, I've told this uh, to some guys before, some of you need, a, you need to quit your job. You quit your job and start working for God. But then go back and keep working the same job that you're doing. It's a whole different mindset change that you're working ultimately for God. He's your employer. All right, second point Paul makes here. Fairly treat those under your authority. Fairly treat those under your authority. We see this in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Masters, supervisors, employers, do the same. Stop your threatening. Know that you have a master yourself. And with him, there's no partiality. He reminds them, all right, there's a judgment. And he can reward and punish those in this life. That we should fear him and live mindfully of this. You see, Jesus totally was a, an amazing example of this. And we'll get even more into this. But it, it really changes the way how we are in authority. It changes how we live. I remember I lived uh, the last couple of years when I was... Um, a student in college and then for a year afterwards too uh, I lived with a group of guys with, with three four five other guys and we kind of made this covenant together in what we called like a discipleship house and we talked about it beforehand we said all right here's gonna be the agreement and we want to be in on this we want to do this together we want to be more intentional with our friendship and us living together and so we're going to spend time together. We're going to look to clean the house together, to keep it clean every week and, and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, a part of that was, all right, we'd, we'd, do, we'd make sure we did chores and we'd clean. Think about that, you know, 20-year-old 20, 20 guys actually cleaning the house, right? I know, shocking. But the guy who uh, was a leader for it, um, my first year I did this, what he decided to do is, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the grossest job. So he set an example for this. So every week, David took the grossest job of cleaning the bathroom, cleaning the shower. And he did that. He was even injured. Um, he had like broke his foot for part of it. And he still, he did it. What an example, every week. And so next year, when I led a house, with, uh, we had some juniors in it too, and another senior, and I did the same thing. All right, hey, I'll take the worst job. I did this too at the beginning of our marriage. I, all right, hey, when we do the weekly cleaning and chores of the house, all right, I got the shower, honey, I got the toilet. All right, no one wants to do the toilet. <laughs> but all right, I'm gonna do that. 
This is an example of how, as a, in authority, we should serve others, look for the benefit of others. It's a reflection of who our ultimate master is. It also says that those in authority should stop our threatening. Stop threatening. We should not lord it over, over people, right, as Jesus talked about. We should not threaten to withhold money or love, attention, affection, help or help. You also are under authority, he writes them. We have other people who we serve, and ultimately Jesus. Those in authority, supervision, in the workplace, in the home, and life, we have an incredible witness to live out as a representative of Christ. Treat others how your good master and Lord would treat you. And it really, it shows where our true security is, where our true allegiance is. In Christ, right, he was the ultimate example of this, ultimate example. He was just in the Gospel of Mark, we'll actually cover this in a couple months. Jesus was, um, he was walking um, with his disciples, traveling, right, and he had just told them, hey, told them for the first time in there ex explicitly, I'm going to go to the cross. All right? I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scorned. I'm going to die, but in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And so why that conversation has, is just fresh happening? Jesus later turns back to them and hears them grumbling. And he's like, hey, dudes, what, what disciples, what were you guys just talking about? And they're like, uh, because they were just talking about who was the greatest. He was just talking about the cross and I'm going to be a suffering servant. And he says, they're just talking about, man, man, who do you think is the greatest between us? Peter? Is it John? Is it James? Judas? You know, who's the best? Who's the greatest? Who's the most righteous? And this is what he says to them. Jesus called to them and he said to them, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, over the non-Jews, lord it over them. They're in authority and they want you to know it. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus says, doesn't say, hey, you want to be great? That's bad. Don't, don't want, you shouldn't want to be great. No. He says, you want to be great? This is what greatness looks like in the kingdom. It looks like servanthood. Like you're slaving away for other people. Servanthood is greatness. Servanthood is greatness. And so whether in authority or under authority, we're to serve. And that's what true greatness is. Do we live with this kind of mindset? Right? That's so against the grain. Do we go each day and, and day out and the relationships that we have, the people that we serve under or with, and man, I want to serve them. And so, do you want to be great? Serve. Live and serve to please the Lord, not man. Our third and last point Paul makes, serve your ultimate authority. 
serve your ultimate authority. We see this in verses 7 and 8 and 9. He says, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant, whether he is slave or free. And again, he reminds them, knowing in verse 9 that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no par partiality with him. So again, Servanthood is, if servanthood is greatness, then we can work hard and ultimately serve Christ. He will reward us. The gospel and having Jesus as Lord totally changes how we view our work, how we view our service. But he has to change our hearts because none of us want to serve naturally. No, that's the last thing we want to do. We want other people to serve us, right? I don't I want to serve. I don't want to be selfless. I don't want to deny myself, lay down my life for other people. No, it's about me. People should serve me. I want to have a comfortable life. You see, regeneration is the answer. We need a new heart. People who don't know Christ. It doesn't make sense to Maybe for some of you, this doesn't really make any sense. It's, only, it's because we have to give our life to Christ. We have to give our heart to Christ and all parts of it to Him. Maybe some of us, we've never known a good authority in our lives. Our parents would, weren't good role models of this. We, our supervisors or employers weren't. We don't think maybe much of the government. But repenting, turning and trusting in Christ, yielding our hearts over to our, this good Lord and Master, that changes everything. As one man once said, Christ is king of all, or he is king not at all. Christ is king of all, or he is king not at all. Is every part of your heart, even how you live and work, is that given over to him? You know, the most common descriptor in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the most common descriptor of a Christian, of a believer, is a servant. It's a servant. It says so many times, oh, they were a servant of God. All the apostles, they introduced themselves. All right, I'm, a, I'm a, a, the Apostle Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Verses 8 knowing that whatever good anyone does, this you will receive back from the Lord. Man, stop right there. I want to, do we really consider this? That we're going to be rewarded by the Almighty God. That we're going to be rewarded by Him. We're going to receive it back. Do we live in that way? Whether He's slave or free, that he, we, there's no classism with Him. There's no discrimination. There's no sexism. There's none of this. There's no partiality with God. He's a just, perfect judge. Verse 9. Verse 9, it says masters, and then later on it says, knowing that this is your master who is in heaven. That word right there is actually, they translate it master, but it's, it's actually Lord. It's actually Lord. So that Lord in heaven, Jesus, there's no partiality with him. So the gospel changes 
who our Lord is, right? Amen? And so that changes who our Lord is, how we approach work. It's amazing. You see, masters in the ancient world had power of life and death over their slaves. There could be beatings, imprisonment, or a sale to a harsher environment the master could give out. That's how they could reward their slaves or threaten them with. But earthly masters, employers, supervisors, parents, leaders have the example of God as a good master who is fully sovereign, a good and holy judge. And yet, as the Bible says, he reigns on the just and the unjust. He's merciful to everyone. That rain in an agricultural society was a good thing. He's the one that we can emulate. To be gentle, fair, gracious, whether they're a hard worker or not. Tim Keller was really helpful on this. I want to draw some very applicable things for us of how, how it changes how the way we view work. Uh, he had this article, um, uh, Four Ways Faith Shapes Our Work. Four Ways Faith Shapes Our Work. But here, I want to, I want to look at five ways that Jesus as Lord, that seeing Jesus as our Lord, changes the way that we view work. First one, Christ as Lord gives us an identity. Christ as Lord gives you an identity. If our identity is our work rather than Christ, success will go to our heads and failure will go to our hearts. Christian faith gives you a new identity without work, which work will sink you. We can be so lazy right? If we don't have maybe a good, we don't believe in our work or don't have a good employer. Or if we're such a people pleaser, oh, we might be overworked, such an approval addict. But we have an identity that's solid in Christ, working not to gain a man or a woman's approval, but, or to compete with our peers, or just work for a raise. It keeps our work life from having no boundaries. Secondly, Christ as Lord transforms work. It transforms work. It redeems it. You see, life, excuse me, work was there from the start. Even before sin, he gave Adam, his first job was to name the animals. And then he puts Adam and Eve there and he gives them certain tasks to cultivate the garden. He gives them work there. I think even... I don't have time to tease this out now, that there actually be work too in the new heavens and new earth, in paradise. Work was there. It's only then afterwards that it was cursed by sin. It was cursed and then, all right, he says, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to toil for it. There's going to be thorns. So it became cursed. And then now, since the cross, Jesus is reversing the curse. He's reversing the curse. Now he adds, there's dignity and value to all work. So suddenly, with Christ, if we're actually, he's the one we're actually serving, no matter what we do, there's no lowly job. There's no job too low for us. There's no divide between sacred work and secular work. It's all holy. All work is holy. So it's not like, oh, only the pastor or something, that's holy work, you know? Ah, to be a monk or a nun, no, it's all holy to God because it's all done for Him. It frees us from the monotony of work. Right? He says, whether you eat or drink, everyone's got to eat or drink. Whatever you do, that means glorify to God. So now there's no boring work if you're doing it for Jesus. Thirdly, 
Christ as Lord provides character. Christ as Lord provides character. If our boss or our paycheck or even our family are at the bottom line, but no, not them, but Christ is. This saves us from becoming corrupt and, and instead we can live with character. So we don't take shortcuts. We don't cut corners. We don't try to just get ahead. We don't trample over other co-workers because we have character. Because he's the Lord. He's the one we're ultimately doing it for. We're doing it for Christ. And then character is king. There's reward in heaven that's going to far outweigh whatever earthly rewards that we could have. Fourthly, Christ as Lord gives us a new worldview. He gives us a new worldview of work. Living for Christ as Lord frees us from making work our God, from being it being our idol. Work is not just then a means of achieving our other God as well. That sometimes we do work so we can have free time, or we work for money, we work for power, for significance, for the approval of a person or a spouse. No, work is now good just in of itself. Instead, we have the freedom to work to serve others for the be benefit of a society, to do good to others. Work no longer is a master over you, but it can then, you can be master over it. You no longer have to work to live or live to work, but Christ is all and in all. If Christ is your master and you his servant, then work is no longer your master, but your servant. Lastly, fifth, Christ as Lord provides hope. Provides hope. Because any kind of work you can grow disillusioned with and frustrated, right? That's part of the curse. If you enter the legal or criminal system hoping to bring about justice or health care in order to provide healing or city planning to see city transformation, you're going to be frustrated with how little you do how little you do that impacts injustice or stops cancers or improves cities. We all can grow frustrated in our work. I'm not improving in this. It's not seeing the change I want. I could be the worst at this. But if we know that there's a God who brings about in, an end to injustice, who is going to bring justice, who's going to end human suffering, who's going to usher in a divine kingdom, that he's, he is the one who's doing that now, and ultimately, he's going to come back to fully do that. Then our work now can have hope that it will make a difference because of what he's doing. It might be hidden now, but it will. He will do it in his timing. He's coming back to make all things new, to make all things right. And this prevents us from being disillusioned and so frustrated with our work. He redeems it. Lastly, Christ's very life was a reflection of this kind of servant authority. I want to close with this. See, Christ has an upside-down kingdom. He was the one who showed the downward mobility that we should all take as servants. Can you imagine with me the riches and the status of Christ? the Prince of Heaven. He upholds the universe 
with the word of his power. Everything that goes on in your world, in the seven billion people around the globe, everything that's going on. He holds the tectonic plates in place. The earths, the planets that spin, right? Every galaxy. He holds it all. And he can snap a finger and obliterate every sinner, every person that he has crossed and rebelled against his authority. But this prince of the universe becomes a frail human under authority. He's born as a helpless human in a filthy manger who lived under the rule of the Roman Empire. He submitted to his parents as human authority. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Submitting to Joseph and Mary? From the one who is omniscient, who has perfect wisdom and knowledge? Oh dear, it doesn't sound. Ultimately, <laughs> he, Jesus empties himself of all his power on the cross. And because of this, though, God exalts himself to the highest place, the throne in heaven. For the joy set before him, he scorned the shame. He was a complete servant for us, ultimately serving us by washing our feet, by cleansing our sin, cleansing us from our sin. The gospel changes how we approach authority. We're first to obey those who are in authority over us. We treat those fairly who are under our authority. And lastly, we serve our ultimate authority. So whether in authority or under authority, we live and serve and please the Lord, not humankind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness that you've shown toward us. We thank you that, Lord, you are perfect. You are our ultimate authority, the leader of our lives. And even you have this utter mindset as a servant, that you entered into our world, our lives, and served us. I pray that that would transform the way that we serve and live and lead. We thank you for the gospel, this servant leader, this man, Jesus Christ, who loved us, who forgives us, who changes the way that we can approach our work, that we can approach authority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.